In the name of the one holy and living God. Amen. Jesus says, all in authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. To stage such an announcement, we might have expected God to have placed Jesus in the temple at the pinnacle of Mount Zion with arms outstretched, chest wide open, voice at full throttle, shaking the very ground beneath the crowd of thousands, triumphant, maybe even bellicose. But Matthew tells us it didn't happen like that. Jesus didn't linger around Jerusalem after rising from the dead. Instead, he returned to a place of anonymity, to an uncelebrated mountain, to a remnant of only 11 disciples, down one from the week before. And in that setting, I can't help but wonder whether Jesus might have been kneeling on one knee and leaning in to the little cluster as he spoke, perhaps perhaps in little more than a whisper, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. However he said it, They heard him clear as a bell on a Sunday morning and fell to worship him then and there. Some, we're told, also doubted, but that didn't keep them from their knees, didn't keep them from recognizing that something astonishing, bewildering perhaps, but something miraculous, something new was happening, that nothing would ever be the same again. So there they are, where it all began, a reunion of sorts. And I like to imagine that Jesus maybe spent a little time with them, maybe over a campfire, looking back together as friends often do on the big occasions, telling the old stories by the light of the new. But Matthew is the one telling the story, not I. And there is an urgency in his tone as Jesus sends them away to make disciples among far-flung strangers, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And the church has struggled ever since to understand just what that means. This is Trinity Sunday when the church celebrates the doctrine of the Trinity, God, the three in one, as it stumbles over itself trying to explain exactly how that can be. To speak about the Trinity is to walk a tightrope of paradox. To lean too far one way is to risk falling into contradiction, and to move too far the other is to disappear into mystery. But we risk it anyway because it matters. Maybe now more than ever it matters. What we say about the nature of God in whose image we are made as we heard and into whose life we are baptized as we also heard is today a matter of life and death. 
How can we begin to know who we are and what we are made for and who we should be to each other unless we know who God is? That God is three in one may be a conundrum, but it is steeped with implications for our lives. If God is three in one, then God is dynamic, flowing, always spilling over, always on the move. If God is three in one, then God embodies goodness, beauty, and truth, and love in diversity, and so reveals contrast and tension rather than uniformity at the heart of all that is. If God is three in one, then God is communal, relational, and hospitable. If God is three in one, then the Trinity at its heart is an expression of deep, unfaltering, and life-giving love between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. The relationship is not one of domination, of competition, and conflict. It is a relationship of unselfish, sacrificial love. What then would we be like if we truly reflected something of God's image? An image of diversity within a whole, a unity expressed in a spectacular array of difference. Would we be more flexible, more courageous, making more room even as we move toward one another? Might we be genuinely curious and appreciative, perhaps honest about our fears and penitent about our histories? Would we still prioritize privilege over care and concern for others? Would we continue to value independence and autonomy over companionship and mutuality? Would we be motivated first and foremost by selfless love? I wonder. An ancient way of speaking of the Trinity is that a space is opened up for relationship between God and humanity. The mystery and seeming contradictions at the heart of the doctrine of the Trinity pry open in us a space that allows the possibility of a God who is transcendent and yet involved with us in flesh and blood. So that the stories we tell at Christmas and Easter, Ascension and Pentecost may speak something true about God and about our life in God. The doctrine of the Trinity opens a space with room for a God who is absolutely free, self-sufficient, without parts or passions, yet is also eternally ever-flowing with self-giving love. A space for a God who is worshipped as above all things, yet enters into human life and suffers and dies with us. It holds open the space for a God who transcends us utterly, yet is closer to us than the breath in our bodies. It holds open the space for a God who holds open the divine heart for us. 
What might it mean to accept the invitation and to enter into that space, to find there, looking back at us, the unflinching gaze of the living God? A look at once so bright and hot that it illumines all that is broken in each of us and sears all that is false almost as immediately as it reconciles and burnishes its own image within us. A communion so profound that we see our uniqueness only in relation to the whole. Would we risk a transformation like that? A realignment of power and authority that might just turn everything upside down and inside out? Not long ago, Elliot West wrote a morning reflection which for me captured something of this invitation. He was going through a tough time and the usual resources were failing him. He could no longer simply power through, and so he turned to the practice of Lectio Divina, divine reading, divine contemplation upon scripture, which is itself a practice of entering that holy space held open by the Trinity. The reading that day was the one about the Samaritan woman at the well. Eliot wrote, I tried to imagine myself in her place. In that passage, there is plenty of back and forth, living water, the woman's past, etc. But when I went there, there was almost none. The woman asked Jesus what he wants, and Jesus simply looks at her. It is a look, Eliot writes, I have tried but failed to describe. It is above all one of knowing knowing who I am in the sense of all I have done and left undone, all the sins and gifts and pains and fears and longings, but also a knowing far beyond that, a knowing of who I am at an unfathomable level. The look is not remotely threatening, but rather is utterly disarming, and profoundly inviting. I wonder if that isn't how Jesus looked at his disciples that final day in Galilee. Surely Jesus saw them plainly, and they could see by the look in his eyes that he saw it all. Even those parts of himself they would rather hide, the guilt, the shame, the fear, the doubt. But he was not repulsed as they might have expected. Rather, he drew them close and entrusted them with his great unfinished work of love. Just as he looks at us and entrusts us with the same. He opened a space in them, in us all, that he occupies to this day. Remember, were his final words, that I am with you always. In these troubling times, 
when there is so much that seems to divide us, may God, the holy and undivided Trinity, give us grace to recognize Christ in one another and in the entirety of our hurting world. Amen.